0: Welcome to the Education for Social Change podcast. I am Lucas Wallrich, and in this podcast, I'm going to interview educators, researchers, innovators, and entrepreneurs to hear how they are trying to use education to make the world a better place one way or the other. In this episode, I'm speaking to Ross Hall, who until recently directed Ashoka's Global Educational Strategy. Now he co-founded the Weaving Lab, where they try to support local communities in weaving educational ecosystems for universal well-being. So in this conversation, we'll talk about what universal well-being actually is, about how weaving might be a strategy for making educational change happen and explore some of the examples Ross has seen. I found the conversation truly fascinating, so I hope you will enjoy this episode. So let me ask you what the underlying Idea behind your workers? How do you want to change education for young people? I believe that
1: as a species, our highest aspiration and deepest purpose is to thrive or flourish. And I equally believe that to thrive in the modern world is in many ways more challenging than it's ever been. Or there are uh, particular challenges about the modern world that make thriving particularly difficult in the modern world. We live in a time of personal, social, and environmental crisis, for example, emergencies even. We live in a time of volatility and uncertainty and complexity and ambiguity. We live in a time in which humans are reorganizing themselves, You know, pushing decision-making to the edges, creating shape-shifting organizations. We live in a time of a massive technological revolution particularly around automation and AI, which is fueling the fourth industrial revolution. We live in a time of hyper-connectivity fueled by massive explosions in uh, human population growth, in migration and urbanization. And all of these huge kind of tectonic shifts that we're experiencing now work together, I believe, to make um, thriving particularly challenging in the modern world. I think to thrive in the modern world All of these challenges point to the need to empower everyone to thrive. We can't, in other words, rely on the status quo or hierarchical, centralized command and control decision-making structures. Everyone needs to be wholly empowered to thrive. What Ashoka would call, everyone needs to become a change maker. And that means we need to empower everyone to make positive change. We need to equip and incline everyone to live for universal well-being. Now, this idea of universal well-being is that is the idea of living to optimize your own personal well-being with societal well-being, with planetary well-being. It's living for the whole world. And that is a really complex undertaking to go about uh, acting from moment to moment Optimizing personal, societal, and planetary well-being, what Ashoka would call change-making, involves taking the lead, taking responsibility, uh, making positive change, making difficult decisions, solving complex problems, facing harsh realities, creating new opportunities, etc., etc. And at a deeper level, being empowered to live for universal well-being means uh, being self-aware, being empathic being open, being present, being reflective, being possibility-minded, being system-minded, being thoughtful, being wise, being proactive, being adaptable, being purposeful, being growth-minded, etc., etc., etc. In other words, being empowered in this way involves being empowered in many, many dimensions. And that's really difficult. And the question for me then is, if being empowered means being empowered in these many dimensions, the question for me is, what does it mean to become empowered? How does someone become empowered in these many dimensions? And the research and work I've been doing over the past 15 years or so point to some very strong ideas around what kinds of experience, what kinds of learning experience are important in the empowerment of people. People say, young people particularly, need to, from a very early age, experience taking the lead. They need to experience working in the community, doing projects, collaborative projects particularly. They should um, be in nature, exploring, experimenting, being challenged, failing. People become empowered through processes or experiences of questioning, debating, reflecting, playing, moving, meditating, making. These kinds of empowering learning experience are very rarely the norm in schools around the world. Of course, there are some brilliant exceptions, but for the most part, schools are not providing this kind of empowering learning experience, Uh, nor are families and nor are other people in the community. So a young person today is simply, on average, is simply not having the opportunity to become empowered through this kind of learning experience. So the question then is, well, who is it who could or even should help People become empowered through this kind of experience. And when you ask anyone around the world, you typically get the same responses. People will say, well, teachers and educators have a direct influence on learning experiences, parents, families. But then you very quickly move into peers. And community leaders and religious leaders in many places advertisers culture makers social workers health workers and so on you've got this very wide range of people who have a direct influence on the experience of young people and therefore have a direct experience on the empowerment or not empowerment of young people and then if you ask the question well who else you very quickly realize that there's a whole set of actors who are not having a direct influence on the empowerment and experience of young people, but are having a profound indirect influence. Teacher unions, policy makers, teacher trainers, administrators, admissions people, em- employers, assessors, funders, and so on. And so the argument then is in order to ensure that everyone is provided with empowering learning experiences in every school in every home in every neighborhood, We need to find the change leaders, the pioneers, the innovators and early adopters, the influencers. And you need to help those people in every community, first of all, align to this North Star of empowering everyone. They all need to share the common purpose of empowering everyone. Again, think of what purpose we express through educational experiences currently. This is not about holistic empowerment typically. It's typically at the moment about and conforming and so we need a new North Star that is shared in every neighborhood and then you need to move from that community just being aligned to a shared purpose to actually collaborating they need to share resources and processes and opportunities they need to form teams in other words and in fact they need to form teams of teams in every neighborhood frontline and second line actors and then the third thing they need to do is not just form teams to empower everyone in that neighborhood, but to form teams that think about changing the system so that future generations, and in fact, every young person who is born into that neighborhood stands the best chance of becoming empowered to live for universal well-being. So this is about acting systemically. So you've got these kind of three pillars that are working in every neighborhood, um, The community coming together to align to a North Star, to collaborate with each other and to make systemic change, long term systemic change. And this process then of the community aligning, collaborating and acting systemically is a process of weaving, learning ecosystems. So we move from the kind of classic educational system, which is very narrowly focused. It's very um, kind of mechanical, linear, fragmented to a whole neighborhood working together with schools but not just with schools the whole neighborhood working together in a very organic holistic and adaptive way and this is what we call weaving learning ecosystems and this is the work that i'm now uh, uh, trying to to advance is this idea of um, advancing the profession of weaving empowering learning ecosystems so that at some point in the future, everyone lives in an empowering learning ecosystem in every neighborhood, in every organization, in every network. Does that make sense? Yeah, it
0: makes, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's a very inspiring vision. Um, so many directions to, to take the questions from here. Um, I, I think actually before I want to continue down the line of how to, how to make that happen I was quite curious about what you said about this universal and holistic uh, well-being, how, how the different levels need to be integrated. And I think you spent quite a few years actually researching well-being. Yeah. Could yeah. you maybe elaborate a bit what, what surprised you doing, doing your research and maybe if there are any common misunderstandings? Because I think everyone agrees that well-being is really important, but maybe not everyone agrees on what that actually means.
1: Um. There's a kind of a folk understanding of well-being. There's this idea that well-being means, you know, being physically well and being mentally well. And those two dimensions are really important. Then there's another kind of folk idea, which is around happiness, which is often um, construed as being happy in the moment, although it is typically measured as being content over time, which takes you uh, closer to, I think, this idea of, of, of universal well being. I think the folk idea also is often highly individualistic. So there's this idea that, you know, I am well, uh, meaning I'm physically well, I'm mentally well, and maybe I'm happy. But it typically doesn't recognize the idea that my well-being is inextricably entwined with the well-being of everyone else. So it doesn't take into account the social dimension, for example. It often doesn't take into account the emotional dimension or the spiritual dimension or the relationship between me and nature or me and uh, the universe. So that's, um, the way I construe it is to I use the term universal well-being to Denote this kind of highly interconnected, interdependent notion of personal well being, which is physical, emotional, um, mental, spiritual, social, that's at the sort of individual level. And then societal well being being the kind of aggregate of the community's well being from a social perspective and the well-being of the economy and the well-being of political systems. So you've got that kind of the functioning of the the society. And in the economic piece on well-being there, it encapsulates ideas of standard of living, which is often a misconstrued. So standard of living is more about the kind of uh, almost quantity of life as opposed to quality of life. And then planetary well-being, within which personal and societal well-being sit, which includes you know, the well-being of the soil, water, air, the well-being of other species, etc. And you would include climate in that, I think, as well. So it's this very kind of always moving, all-embracing concept. And at the very center of this as an idea is the idea that we and everything is wholly interconnected and interdependent. And I think... Alan Watts put it beautifully, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he says, we are this universe and we are creating it at every moment. And it's that which puts ourselves in a way at the heart of the universe, but also on the edges of the universe at the same time, which I think encapsulates that idea of empowering everyone to, through their being, make their most positive contribution to universal well-being.
0: Yeah. And the way you describe um, change, the way you describe these learning ecosystems coming up, it's quite a maybe non-traditional approach to to educational reform. So I'm wondering to what extent that sort of a tactical view that the classical route through politics and top-down system change just doesn't work? And to what extent that's kind of embedded into your understanding?
1: Yeah, that's an important question. So just to be clear at the offset, I'm not saying that policy change is unimportant i think it's really important but you know what we can see as far as i can tell what i can see is that um, policy change alone hasn't worked and i think the kind of more classical idea of hierarchical and heroic change leadership is the way forwards doesn't seem to work it hasn't worked has it the education system pretty much has remained unchanged for a long 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 time but far too long and so my belief is that we need combinations of the kind of hierarchical or top-down policy change, with um, heroic efforts from social entrepreneurs, etc. But critically, with more collective, and, and I'm, I'm not even going to call it grassroots work because it's not just grassroots; it's collective insofar as it should embrace everyone wherever they are in the system, the policymaker and the young person themselves and everybody else in that map. So my belief is that we need to, be, and, and you know, if you look at the literature on collective impact, it's very powerful. It shows time and time again that complex problems are best solved through collective or collaborative action. If you look at the sort of classic, the old phrase of it takes a village to raise a child, we could perhaps update that to say it takes a learning ecosystem to raise a whole human being or however you want to call that. I mean, this this idea is that you've got the whole neighborhood working to empower the whole human being to live for the whole world. And this to me just seems so eminently sensible um, as to warrant my attention. It's really difficult, by the way. It's complex and it's difficult, Uh, but it does seem completely sensible to take this approach.
0: And what is your specific contribution to that approach? How how do you want to support the creation of these learning ecosystems?
1: So I'm trying to support the creation of these learning ecosystems by, uh, first of all, recognizing that in order to create these kinds of empowering learning ecosystems, Uh, there is a certain capacity or expertise even that is required to to do this, what we call weaving. And weaving is the process of bringing the community together and helping that community align itself to a shared North Star. This is aligning to a a common vision and purpose, a common set of uh, values as well. And that involves Uh, Steering conversations, asking smart questions, inspiring people, surfacing stories and and, uh, evidence. It means knowing the community, inviting diverse perspectives and therefore holding often difficult conversations. It leads to the need to foster trust uh, in the neighborhood, in the community uh, surfacing the wisdom of the community etc etc this even just this one piece of it this aligning a community is in itself a really really complex discipline then when you move to the idea of collaborating weaving collaborations is then gets even more difficult because it also then involves you know, identifying knowing what resources are available in the neighborhood organizing and energizing teams and keeping those teams motivated And reducing bureaucracy, helping teams, the work of teams, uh, flow, for example. It means uh, enabling fluid communications between teams. Again, holding spaces for collective learning within and across teams, etc. So this process of weaving collaborations is really difficult. And then when you get to the next piece, which is acting systemically, it's, again, really difficult. You've got to be able, the weaver needs to be able to uh, understand what are the systemic mechanisms and mindsets that are holding the existing system in place? What are the root causes of problems? They need to understand how to create change in terms of systemic mechanisms and mindsets. So it's about mapping uh, systems, it's about backcasting, it's about understanding how to scale ideas and models, it's how to measure progress, etc. Again, there's a real kind of technicality to this kind of role. So this Um, This practice of weaving, of aligning, collaborating, and acting systemically is really complex. And what I'm uh, trying to do through the weaving lab is to essentially create a learning ecosystem of weavers who are weaving learning ecosystems. So we're trying to model this idea of creating a community of practitioners, weavers, who are doing this work, who are learning together how to do it better and who are sharing those learnings and those stories with the wider world to attract other people into this profession. And our hope then is to create a global profession of weavers so that at some point in every neighborhood there are weavers who are experts and supporting each other in this very difficult work.
0: Um, And do you see that as a really specific independent role in a community or is it a role that... Any of the the educators could take on in addition to what they are doing, what would that look like on a community level?
1: It's a re- really good question, Lucas. Thanks for that. Um, and in fact, I was just having a conversation about this this morning. It seems that actually there isn't necessarily just one single type or one specific role here. Which is why often we talk about advancing the practice of weaving as opposed to insisting that there's always a kind of dedicated, full time dedicated professional role. At one end of a spectrum, I think there is a need for a professional dedicated uh, weaver or perhaps more than one weaver in every neighborhood or city. And again, we're not sure of the scale of, of you know, what is the scale at which that individual or that small team of Weavers can operate. Um, At the other end, it's a practice that perhaps everyone should be contributing to. You know, what we don't want to do is, again, to create another kind of hierarchy within any neighborhood, but rather to invite everybody to step forwards, to put other people forwards into this very organic, collaborative way of working together to continuously change the neighborhood. I mean, this is the other factor here. This is not something that is ever fixed Because if you look at the current education system, which is incredibly inert, what we need to move to is a kind of a learning ecosystem, which is always improving. It's always adapting to the changing environment, which will continue to change uh, around it and in it. So there's a need for um, teachers, for parents, for policymakers and for many other people in the system to practice weaving for some of those people to really commit to getting really good at it and for some of those people to actually ultimately have a dedicated, full-time, paid-for role. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that, that makes sense. Do you have a view as to what the role of the school and of professional teachers is in such an ecosystem or is it just a huge
1: variety of possibilities? Again, I think this, and we're starting to see this um, in some places, I'm, I'm working with an organization called Learn Life who are currently operating in Barcelona, but soon to be operating globally. And what Learn Life have developed, and this is very reflective of some work I did many years with CAMFED in Zimbabwe and Tanzania, there is uh, a role for what might be thought of as a learning guide. Um, so this is not to say that teachers will become redundant at all. I think there's um, very likely uh, a, a need for professional highly professional trained teachers, but I think that maybe um, the emphasis of their work will shift and is perhaps even beginning to shift away from the kind of classic transmission of knowledge to someone who is guiding learners to lead their own learning. So there's this idea the new paradigm of learning is likely to be learners who are learning to learn, learning to direct their own learning and therefore um, shifting the emphasis from from, uh, teaching to guiding somebody's um, learning. There's a lovely phrase somebody um, explained to me recently, it was this idea of the teacher accompanying a young person on their learning journey Um, and I really like that kind of metaphor that the learner is on a journey and there are people around them to um, help and guide when necessary, but without being overbearing. So I think the future is in learning guides. Which requires quite a different skill set from what teachers are currently taught. I think it probably does, yeah. I think there's a, a very strong emphasis in that on empathy, on subduing one's ego, on therefore not... Um, expecting or claiming to be a a complete expert. All of that requires very deep self-awareness. So social and emotional learning for teachers, I think, is going to be absolutely critical. And in fact, that brings me back back to another idea, which is that it seems to me that what we need to do is to create learning ecosystems which are, by definition, focused on learning of learners in the system, but by virtue of that The the systems themselves are learning, in other words, adapting. So the whole system is learning, which means by definition, the system and everyone in the system needs to be self-aware and empathic and present and open and growth-minded and curious and all of those wonderful uh, states of being which are essential. And I think that goes for teachers and learner guides and for weavers who I believe, need to model this kind of system in order to change systems. And in fact, we often talk about weavers uh, know that they are in the system and that to transform the system, they must transform themselves. So for weavers, the practice of weaving, in other words, is by definition a practice of uh, self-development as well as outer work. So it's about being and doing and I think this probably goes for teachers and learning guides too.
0: Yeah, it was actually one of the questions I also wanted to ask, because I read your article, how it all begins with us, how it's about also kind of role modeling and living the, the attributes we want these learning ecosystems to have in terms of being ad- adaptive, collaborative, empathic, and so on. Do you have any specific ideas or experiences or habits for how
1: to develop these characteristics? Yes, we do. Um, I mean, there's a lot of models now, and there's a lot of movement, of course, of people developing, you know, doing involved in social and emotional learning for young people. It seems to become increasingly difficult the older the learner becomes. But there are um, lots of techniques we use. So the learning journeys we run for weavers often involve being in nature, so connecting with nature, um, slowing down, listening carefully to nature, observing in nature. Um, can be a really strong catalyst for people finding um, their empathy. We do a lot of work around um, authenticity and trust building with groups, which, again, typically creates the conditions within which people can feel comfortable enough to be authentic. And by being authentic, this often attracts the empathy in in people. It, It enhances empathy in the listener. And, you know, we do lots of kind of eye contact and we do lots of uh, movement. So it's this element of weaving is not so much about the kind of cognitive or uh, development or knowledge acquisition, but it's more about that wholly embodied kind of learning experience where we get in touch with our whole selves and we um, find our self-awareness and our empathy. Um, I've done this quite a lot with young people in, uh, again, in, in Africa too, and This seems this kind of technique, well, in in, in many places, in impoverished uh, villages and in the swankiest of cities around the world. And the kinds of technique that work seem to be pretty consistent everywhere. And I think the reason for that is that what we're doing really here is tapping into the deepest essence of who we are, the deepest sense of what it means to be human. And so you can cut through many of the kind of more superficial cultural norms and approaches that sometimes define different learning experiences, you know, going really, really to the root of of who we are. There's something universal in human being.
0: What would be one of the specific things you do with young people in such a context that you find impactful?
1: Um, It depends how young. I mean, there's a beautiful, at at very young ages, there's a very beautiful Program from Mary Gordon and Roots of Empathy. I don't know if you've seen it, um, which involves uh, bringing a parent and their baby into a group of uh, young children. And there's a there's a like a green mat, and the the parent and the baby sit on the green mat, and they just bond, and the baby plays, and they talk, they communicate with each other, and the young people surrounding the baby and parent. Uh, observe this uh, interaction. And then over time, they start to interact themselves directly with the baby and with with the parent. And they do this over a matter of of weeks. And during that time, and the research is completely um, uh, clear on this, uh, these young people radically uh, transform their power of empathy, uh, particularly, but then many other kind of facets of self-awareness and uh, many other kind of social emotional uh, dimensions and I think this is very beautiful and this is what in some ways very kind of simple and beautiful about this is that what children are doing is they are observing and experiencing uh, because they're also reflecting on this bond between a parent and a baby this bond which is love they're experiencing love and I think what is, has what is shown that the, the research shows that this is an example of a transformative experience. I think it's a lovely experience. And it seems to me that as we get older and we sort of increasingly kind of shut down ourselves to love, particularly in professional settings, that we kind of shut out these experiences in a way. Or we create bubbles in which we allow ourselves to experience love or even i mean you don't call it love you know it's kind of deep human connection if you want to call it that and what we're finding is that just by creating the right conditions which have to be safe and trusted conditions in which adults can experience this deep human connection can be really prof- can be equally profound one of the challenges in that is that Sometimes this can allow for the emergence of past traumas. To uh, yeah, of for, for past traumas. So when we, as we accumulate trauma through our lives, and then we're given an opportunity to experience deep human connections, sometimes these traumas come come through. So these kinds of experience need to be very carefully moderated or curated. And there are, you can do this in grades and, you know, lots of people who feel really uncomfortable at the beginning, you have to kind of bring them in very gently. And of course, there's also a risk that people can take this too far, but but generally speaking, creating conditions within which people can really experience deep human connections can be hugely transformative at any age.
0: Yeah, de- definitely. I do have some experience in such work with kind of university students and, and adults. And I've definitely made that experience as well. Once they have a chance to, to yeah. open up, it quickly is transformative. I'm actually wondering how you deal with
1: this, this issue
0: around trauma. do
1: I? Yeah, I don't have a, a, a clean answer for that. I mean, you just need to make sure that when you're curating this sort of experience, somebody who is expert in dealing with trauma is present. Um, I'm not an expert in dealing with trauma. So I always make sure that I've got somebody uh, who is present if I'm imagining or expecting a challenge uh, to come through. Um, again, I mean, d- d- my experience when this has happened, however, is that often the individual's experience or reliving of past trauma can itself be really healing if it's moderated uh, carefully. It can also be really powerful for those who are witnessing it um, because often they can, again, have an opportunity to exercise their own empathy and their own self-awareness and their own uh, caring and uh, loving sense. So quite often, these difficult experiences are the most transformative in this kind of learning journey. Mm-hmm. So when I hear about these
0: learning ecosystems and communities, I think it sounds very inspiring and many people, I think, would be willing to support that on, a, on an intellectual level. Yep. But actually creating them takes a lot of energy energy a lot of time from people and a lot of deep work on a personal level. Where does the energy for that come from? Are there any necessary enablers? Do communities need external resources or how how does the mobilization work?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, if I look at where this is now happening, there's some very interesting examples and the energy is being catalyzed from different places. So, for example, in uh, New Delhi, this is... Uh lovely uh, weaver Vishal Talraja, is doing some really interesting weaving work in New Delhi. He's doing it off the back of the implementation of a new happiness curriculum, which is a government driven initiative. So he's a social entrepreneur and he brings in that kind of um, that energy that he has um, into the equation with this kind of ministerial energy, which is to essentially um, implement a a well-being and happiness curriculum. So that's interesting. If I look at um, another lovely uh, weaver in Medellin, Colombia, Catalina Koch. Again, she's a social entrepreneur. Um, she's been deeply involved in the peace process, and as which by definition is about bringing people together to reconcile. And so the energy there is fueled through the peace process. And again, it's come out of the kind of peace process and it's a grassroots kind of source uh, of work, but is now involving uh, government actors. There's some interesting the work I'm doing with Learn Life, uh, starting in Barcelona. This is um, a private for-profit company, but a for-purpose for-profit company who are um, creating learning ecosystems at the city level. And the driver there is really just recognizing that we need a new kind of school and it's this kind of entrepreneurial energy which is driving it which is to say look we desperately need to do this let's apply let's apply entrepreneurial principles and energy in order to get this thing done and there may be many many other sources of, of energy here the critical thing is I think that you ultimately need to find multi almost by definition you need to find multiple sources of energy in order that this becomes um, owned by the collective. Um, the, the energy needs to be distributed throughout the, the collective. So even though it will start with one or two people, perhaps very quickly, you need to make sure that you've got funding in place, that you've got you know, your government buy in in place. So it can just it can happen. You need to have a grassroots buy in you need to have young people involved and parents and teachers and school leaders, and the administrators, and, and, and. So the role of the weaver then, and this is why you need to make these things seem to only work if you've got people right at the beginning who are weaving this. The role of the weaver at that point is to bring together all the right kind of people. And that's why this focus on diversity at the very early stages is really important. Because if you've just got a kind of a particular interest group but you're shutting out everyone else in the community, uh, you're probably going to struggle to go very far. So it's a case of finding that initial seed of, or spark of energy and then very quickly um, using that to create additional sparks around the ecosystem.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things you have written about is how it, it requires a real shift in how success is measured how projects are evaluated since people no longer really own their particular niche of the space. Are funders, policymakers, and so on open to that, or is that
1: something you also need to invest a lot of energy in? Um, This is not easy to fund because it's, by definition, so pioneering that it's, uh, it's difficult for funders to get their heads around it, typically. I mean, there's a whole... Conversation we could have around the, the problems of, of funding. Um, having said that, there's a lot happening with limited funding. So I don't think this needs to be hugely expensive. I also think there are some really um, interesting ways in which this could be funded. So a couple of examples in the UK that are seeming to emerge now, very early stages, but look very promising, involve people investing in new school in housing in a kind of the infrastructure that could be helpful in the creation of this kind of learning ecosystem the creation of new towns of new cities of regenerate you know this kind of big uh, city regeneration city development projects look quite interesting because in the context of a city development and there's some really interesting city developments in amsterdam as well kind of these very future looking uh, developments In the context of the expense of investing in the infrastructure for city development, the cost of investing in weaving capacity is minimal. It's really kind of, it's like a rounding error. So we think there's a really strong possibility of growing the profession and the practice through these kinds of city developments, which will hopefully then allow us to uh, make it easier for anybody anywhere to take this Forwards. So not to be reliant on big uh, infrastructural investment. Uh, but we think that might be a good place for us to make quick traction.
0: Yeah, that, that does sound promising. You already mentioned one potential pitfall in terms of keeping the, the base too, too narrow and focused. But are there other things that people who might want to contribute to this transformation really should be beware of and try to avoid?
1: Um, I think the main thing to avoid is to avoid setting unrealistic expectations. This can be slow work. It's really complex. It's very nuanced. And as the system is moving all the time, people moving in and out of roles and responsibilities, the project itself is always uh, changing. So to avoid the expectation that change is going to happen really quickly and that change will happen in a linear fashion, I think this kind of change is um, slow and non-linear. At some point, it will hit a point where it just flies, but there's this kind of work up front which is uh, inevitably, I think, quite slow and non-linear. Okay,
0: if if we move towards wrapping up, I'd have a couple of questions more about you and your personal uh, journey. Because when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, I was intrigued that you haven't been working in education all along, but actually started out in the pharmaceutical sector. Um, What brought you
1: into education? Yes, so my early career was um, designing and launching new businesses for corporates, uh, which I did for many years around the world. Um, And that was really interesting. But ultimately, I was finding it very frustrating. I was not very good at just focusing on making money. I never felt that was fulfilling. Um, I started doing that in the field of education and had the great privilege of traveling the world and visiting schools and talking to kids and parents and teachers and policymakers and employers and looking at education systems and very quickly became obsessed with the idea that one, the world needs changing and two, that education systems everywhere are not even trying to change the world for the better. Or at least their attempts are rather uh, shallow, I felt. So I became totally obsessed with the idea of changing the world by changing education, which has then expanded into transforming growing up. And then that's expanded into transforming whole communities and cities into this kind of learning ecosystem. And what's been interesting is as I've got older, the more I've realized that actually in all of this experience, uh, my dad's voice has become um, increasingly uh, loud in my mind. He was a teacher and a scoutmaster and more than teaching, his real interest was character development. He didn't use that term, but essentially he was really interested in this idea of developing the whole person to make their best contribution in life. And that idea I can see has been with me. Um, throughout my life and as you know only in the last 15 years i've been able to kind of explore and express that idea more deeply
0: yeah uh, one question i tend to ask uh, educators or interviews what advice they would give to their younger self when they were starting out their career I now leave it up to you whether that's when you started out your first career or you work in education but is there any advice you would give yourself to the benefit of hindsight
1: yeah be more courageous and patient in finding and pursuing purpose. I think I was too impatient um, and quick to jump into purely for-profit business ventures when, in fact, I think I would have been uh, happier and a stronger contributor had I held out a bit and insisted on following a deeper purpose. But I'm not some, at the same time. I'm not someone to dwell on the past, so I don't particularly live with that regret. But if, uh, in answer to your question, that's uh, something that I would uh, advise my younger self.
0: Mm-hmm. So you talked uh, a bit about various influences on your on your thinking, but is there maybe any book or thinker or other resource that particularly influenced you and that listeners should check out?
1: Um, well. Oh, there's all sorts, all sorts of of work. Um, but one book that I've just been uh, revisiting, which um, has been strongly influential, by a good friend of mine, uh, by Daniel Christian Val, is "Designing Regenerative Cultures" by Daniel Christian Val, which I think beautifully captures the idea of the the, the kind of very deep and holistic ideas around transforming the world for the better.
0: I'll definitely check that out and link to it in the show notes. So, final question would be if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it to kind of get a message out to the world, what would it say?
1: Well, that's an incredibly difficult question because I want to be clever and I'm struggling to be clever or at least funny and I'm struggling to be funny as well. Um, Yeah, I'm going to go for the For the obvious, it would involve an exclamation mark, and I would just have weave, exclamation mark, but in quite a small font. Okay, that
0: would certainly raise uh, curiosity, so I like that. So, yeah, thank you, thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Education for Social Change. If you enjoyed the conversation, please share it with at least one friend. Also, if you have any thoughts or feedback I'd love to hear from you, you can find my email address in the show notes. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get this podcast, that would also be much appreciated. Next time I'm speaking to Quinn Ransborough from Partners for Youth Empowerment. They have trained thousands of educators to make education more empowering and engaging by injecting arts
1: into the experience, so stay tuned.